You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Okay. At at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews to gather with the leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and they fled to Lysonian, cities of Lystra and Debe, and to surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from those worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in the city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to their faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pesida, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. 
Thanks, Christina. Good job with all those town names. You did a good job. Uh, it'd be great if you don't already have Acts chapter 14 open, please open it up. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon on the uh, welcome card that I referred to earlier, and so please uh, look that up if that's useful for you. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, please uh, pour out your spirit in these moments that I might speak your word uh, in a way that's uh, faithful and clear, uh, but also by the power of your spirit brings change and transformation and correction and growth and conviction. Uh, Father, help each one who is here to listen to your word, uh, listen to it as if it really is your word coming to them this day. Uh, please, Father, change us Make us more and more like Christ, your son. Amen. Uh, what does it actually look like to be a pastor? It's kind of why I asked that question before about uh, any jobs that might be a mystery to you. Uh, this is actually one of the... This microphone seems to be feeding back from my end. I don't know if I'm too loud, talking too loudly or too close. Anyway, uh, it's one of the more common questions I've gotten over the years, even from people who've grown up going to church. Like, what does it look like to be a pastor? People sometimes think, well, do you just work a few hours on Sunday afternoon? Or, like, surely there's not enough work to do, do it full-time. It's all a little bit of a mystery to people. Uh, what are the key priorities of being a pastor or the general patterns of your life, your week? Uh, and what's it all about? What's the purpose of it all? What does it look like to be a pastor? And, of course, that's not just a question for pastors in a broad sense. It's a question for every Christian uh, who wants to give their life in service of God. What does Christian service or ministry look like? What are the key priorities of Christian ministry or the general normal patterns of Christian ministry? What's the whole purpose of it all? What are we actually aiming for? Those are the kind of questions we're exploring today as we look at Acts chapter 14. Uh, the priorities, uh, the patterns, uh, and the purpose of Christian ministry. Uh, and so uh, as we look at this chapter, three points. I haven't had a sermon with alliteration in it for a little while. Uh, so you'll be excited that there are three Ps, I'm sure. Uh, the key priority of Christian ministry, the normal pattern of Christian ministry, uh, and the ultimate or the penultimate, rather, purpose of Christian ministry. So we're just going to look at each of those in turn. Uh, the first, the key priority of Christian ministry. Uh, we're not going to do as much like just straight through the chapter today. We might jump around a little bit uh, to different parts of Acts 14. Uh, and in Acts 14, we see that the key kind of core priority of Christian ministry is God's word, in particular, proclaiming the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus. That's the key priority of Christian ministry. And we see that right from verse 1. If you take a look at verse 1, uh, Luke, who's writing the Acts, says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. And now we see in a second that they start speaking God's word. But what do you make by those words, as usual? Like, why? Like, if you remember the book of Acts so far, uh, Jesus appeared to Paul. And Jesus appointed Paul, in particular, to go and share the gospel with people who weren't Jewish, with non-Jewish people. So it's a bit strange. We see this pattern in the book of Acts that every time Paul arrives in a new city, it's his usual practice 
to go first to the synagogue. Why is that? To go first to the Jews. Well, it's because Paul, despite being sent out by Jesus to the Gentiles, had this deep theological conviction that the good news about Jesus should be shared first with the Jewish people because they, for centuries, had been God's special chosen covenant people. Uh, the people that God had made all sorts of promises to, the people had uh, that God had repeatedly acted on behalf of. Uh, Stu did a great job of unpacking that last week in Acts chapter 13, the big story of Israel's history and how God had been committed to the people of Israel. So in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, even Jesus says that during his earthly ministry, he was sent only to the people of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. So the, the focus, Jesus says, the good news of the kingdom went first to the Jews. And if you look back at a chapter or so in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, you remember Peter says there that the message of the gospel went first to the Jews. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, later on, Paul himself will write that the good news about Jesus is God's power to save everyone, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. It's not because the Jews are better or they deserve to hear the good news more, but it is because they are God's special covenant people. The people God had made all these promises to, and all those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So Paul's convinced that they should hear about Jesus first. So every time he goes into the synagogue, and you'll see that if you're reading Acts, uh, you'll see that happens almost every city that he arrives in. And he proclaims God's word to them. So in the rest of verse 1, we read that Paul and Barnabas uh, spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. You notice what Paul's priority is when he arrives in a new city. Uh, there's lots of things that Christians can be on about, uh, but Paul's priority is not to start a new political party or to launch a new social action group or to write a new play to kind of redeem culture or to write a new liturgy for Christian worship. Like Those are all perfectly fine and wonderful things to do, but his key priority always is God's word. It's proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And notice in verse 3 how that word is described. Take a look in verse 3. It's described as the message of the Lord's grace. That's what's core to Paul's ministry. Again, Stu did a great job of explaining this last week, how the good news of the gospel isn't a message about our goodness as if somehow we could work ourselves up to be good enough for a holy and perfect God. None of us are good enough. It's not a message about our gifts either, as if somehow we could serve enough with the gifts and talents God has given us. Maybe one day he might accept us. And it's not a message about our grit. You know, sometimes people think, if I can just sacrifice enough, show God how serious I am about him, then, well, then he'll accept me. It's not a message. It's a message about the Lord's grace. It's a message about Jesus' undeserved love and kindness. His undeserved love and kindness to people like us as we started our service today. People who come to God uh, and the main thing we have to offer is all our brokenness and sin and failure and flaws. We come, as Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's how we come. 
with nothing to offer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Jesus' cross I cling, as the song says. We come clinging to the undeserved grace and kindness and mercy of Jesus. This is the message of the Lord's grace. And it's that gospel, that good news, that is right at the heart, the key priority of Paul's ministry. We see that again uh, when Paul and Barnabas move on to Lystra. Uh, So you see there in verse 9, if you scan down through the chapter, uh, as soon as they arrive in Lystra, what are they doing? They're speaking again. Uh, We know that because Luke tells us that a man who's been paralysed from birth is listening to them. They're speaking God's word. And now we'll come back to the healing of the paralysed man in a bit. Uh, But in verses 11 and 12, notice how the crowds respond to that healing. What do they say? They say, the gods have come down to us in human form. They thought Barnabas uh, was their god Zeus, and Paul was their god Hermes. Uh, And Christina did a great job of pronouncing the local kind of Lyaconian language. Some confusing words. But you notice that they speak their own local dialect. Like most people in this area, this part of the world, if they'd had some degree of education, uh, would have spoken Greek or Latin, or at least some form of Greek. But these are more just common folk. They've probably never left their local area. Uh, they only know their local language, which is maybe why they're not as sceptical as people today might be about this miracle. Uh, they believe it pretty much straight up, don't they? They believe that the miracles happened, the healing of the man who's been paralysed since birth, And they almost straight away think that Paul and Barnabas are gods who have come down from heaven. Why do they think that? Well, one person who's writing about the book of Acts uh, said this about this passage. It said, local legends in this particular area are told of earlier occasions when the gods uh, had come down to uh, them in the likeness of men. Uh, Ovid tells a story of Philemon and Balchus uh, who entertained Zeus and Hermes. Oh, notice the names, same names. Entertained Zeus and Hermes unaware and they were rewarded. So you see what's going on for these crowds in Lystra? They're excited because they think that in Paul and Barnabas they're entertaining the gods and therefore there is great rewards in store for them. They're familiar with this local myth, this legend about the gods of Zeus and Hermes coming to visit people in the past. In fact, they're so enamoured with Paul and Barnabas, you see there in verse uh, that they get the kind of priest of Zeus from the local temple, bring out the bulls, because we want to offer sacrifices of worship to Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas are devastated. Verse 14, they're tearing their clothes. That's a picture of just how grief-stricken they are. Why? Because they came to Lystra, their aim was to speak words that would move people to worship Jesus, not to worship them. So it's completely backfired, not the response they wanted at all. So from verse 15, they keep speaking and they're calling for a different response. You see there in verse 15, the first thing they say is, what are you worshipping us for? We're not gods who've come down in human form. We're just human beings like you. You shouldn't be worshipping us. Why did they come? They came, notice, to bring you good news. That's the priority of their ministry, to proclaim the good news of the Lord's grace. 
of how sinful and broken and messed up people can be accepted by God simply by trusting in Jesus. That's why they came. And so they want these crowds uh, to respond to the gospel in a very different way, not by worshipping them, but by repenting and believing. Right, so you see first the, the part of repentance where they say, turn away from what Paul calls worthless things. What are these worthless things? I think it's, in particular, worthless idols or false gods. I'm saying turn away from this idea that you should worship just a human being like me or Barnabas or a false god like Zeus or Hermes. Those gods, Paul says, are ultimately empty. They're worthless. They're useless. Now, maybe that seems a little bit harsh to you, you know, going rocking up to someone and saying, your God is worthless. <laughs> Why would Paul say that? I think it's because he understands that in the end, the gods that these people worship can't give them life. Well, I say that but because you'll notice what Paul says. He says, turn away from these worthless things and turn towards the living God, the God who is alive, the God who can give life, the God who's the source of all life. Notice Paul says, uh, he made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So you see Paul's logic, he's saying, why would you worship one of these worthless gods, uh, an idol perhaps that was made out of metal or wood, carved in some way? Why would you worship one of those gods that's dead, that isn't alive and can't give you life, when you could worship the living God who is alive and can give life? Like, which one would you choose? That's what Paul's saying. Now, of course, today we uh, don't tend to worship little carved wooden statues or metal statues. Uh, maybe you do if you're from a Buddhist background or some other background. You might have a shrine with some sort of idols on it that you worship. But many of us don't worship idols in that sense. But that doesn't mean we don't have false gods that we offer sacrifices to. Maybe a god of career success or money or power or sex or approval or comfort or control. Right? These are the kind of gods that dominate our lives. The gods that we sacrifice all sorts of things to try and get our hands on. The gods that promise us life, life now, life forever, but in the end leave us wanting. Because they're not the true and living god. They're a false god that in the end delivers death rather than life. I suspect that's what Paul would say to us if he was here today. He'd say, turn to the living God. Now, maybe these crowds in Lystra, you know, that I said they're common folk, they perhaps haven't travelled far out of their local area, and so they might think, well, why haven't we heard about this living God before? So Paul anticipates that, verse 16. Look what he says. He says, in the past... The living God left all nations to go their own way. He's saying in the past, the, the one true and living God of Israel uh, didn't fully reveal himself to all the nations of the world. That's true. Right here, he revealed himself in particular to the nation of Israel. He allowed all the other nations, in a sense, to go their own way, to worship the gods of their choice, the gods of their own making, rather than the God who made them. But it's not like he's left himself without any evidence. Notice verse 17. 
Yet, Paul says, God hasn't left himself without testimony. It's not like there's no evidence, no testimony for God's existence. What's the evidence? God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. Uh, He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. You see, Paul's saying that the God who made all things has continually revealed himself by sustaining all things. This is testimony, Paul says, not only to the fact that God exists, but to what kind of God he is. He's a God of overflowing generosity and grace and kindness. Not a stingy God up in the sky who's thinking, is this person ignorant of me? Oh, they are. Well, I won't give them anything good. Not a tight-fisted God, but a generous God who gives food and crops and rain and every good gift that we enjoy uh, that fills our hearts with joy, whether we're following him or not, whether we know him or not, whether we're rejecting him or not. You see what Paul's saying? He says, you know the wonderful blessings of this living God. He's revealed himself to you by his overflowing generosity and kindness. Uh, So again, we see that in this this way, uh, Paul's priority is on pointing people to the wonderful grace and kindness of God, the good news of his grace and kindness. And again, when they move on to Derby from Lystra, what do they do there? Well, it's only one verse, verse 21, but they share the word. They preach the gospel. The key priority of Christian ministry is God's word. In particular, the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus. It just has to be that way. It has to be that way because it's the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus that converts people, that rescues people, as they believe the good news about Jesus, his life, death and resurrection, they are brought from spiritual death to life. Right? So this has to be central to our ministry. It's the good news about Jesus, not only that converts people, but that changes people over time. Even as Christians, we must hear the good news about Jesus because it's the gospel that changes us and gradually conforms us to be more and more like Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we do a great job of this here at DPC. I think we do okay. We certainly strive to be a church where the gospel is our key priority. Where each Sunday, I hope, When God's word is preached, you hear the gospel, the good news of the Lord's grace to you in Jesus. Where in your gospel community, uh, your Bible study, your small group during the week, you remind one another of the good news about Jesus. Where after church, as we have conversations with one another, or during the week when you meet someone for a walk or a coffee, uh, you're thinking to yourself, how can I encourage this person with the good news about Jesus? How does God's grace to them in Jesus speak to this hurt or to this sin or to this struggle? But the key priority of Christian ministry is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. So if that's the key priority, uh, what about these miraculous wonders that we see throughout the book of Acts? Why is it that we see these miraculous wonders in the book of Acts But lots of us don't see that many of them today. I don't know if you've thought about that before. It's a pretty complicated question. I'm happy to talk about it more later on. Uh, But at least one of the reasons why is uh, because of the purpose of these wonders. 
Notice verse 3. Take a look in verse 3. Uh, what Luke says there, uh, the Lord confirmed the message of grace by enabling Paul and Barnabas to perform signs and wonders. You, you, remember, you might remember we saw this at the end of Acts chapter 9 with Peter's miracles. I had that kind of little catchphrase that Peter's wonders confirmed his words. That, that's the biblical pattern. That's the same here, right? Uh, God confirmed the words of Paul and Barnabas uh, by enabling them to perform these wonders. Confirmed in the sense of saying Paul is a true apostle of Jesus and therefore the words he speaks are Jesus' words. But likewise in verses 8 to 10, yes, Paul performs this miraculous wonder, but where does he want the focus to be? He wants the focus on the words, right? So that people would respond by repenting and believing in Jesus. That's why if you read through the Bible, you'll actually discover it's not like there's a miracle on every page. I encourage you to read through the Bible. I'm not saying like there are plenty of miracles, but the miracles tend to be clustered around periods of time when God is speaking new words. In the time of Moses, God's speaking a whole bunch of new words, all sorts of miracles. Same with Elijah and Elisha, same with Jesus, same with the apostles. The wonders are given to confirm the words, uh, which is why, uh, even though I might speak God's word here on a Sunday, uh, you don't need as, uh, all these wonders to confirm my words. Why? Because as much as I might say I'm speaking God's word, my words aren't being added to the Bible. You might not realise that, but they might get added to a sermon library. Uh, but they're not being added to the Bible, right? My words are not exactly the same as Paul's words. I have God's authoritative word in the Bible, and I explain that. We have God's authoritative word in the Bible, and we can read that. So this is why, even though God absolutely can perform miracles today, he can. We should absolutely pray for God to perform miracles. But we don't need wonders to confirm our words in the same way as they did in the book of Acts. Because we have God's word in the Bible, the word that is our key priority, the word that we proclaim that's centred on Jesus. That's part of an answer. You might still have questions. I'm happy to talk about that. Anyway, what about the normal pattern? Right? That's the key priority of Christian ministry. What about the normal pattern? I think the normal pattern we see in this chapter is that you speak the good news about Jesus and you can expect a mixed response, a mix of rejection and acceptance. So let's uh, take a look first uh, at um, verse 1. Oh, let me just find my notes. That's a good reflective pause for you. Ah, oh, there, the first one. Yeah, Luke says uh, that in Iconium, uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke the word of God so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Luke clearly thinks that there are more or less effective ways of sharing the gospel. Why, why else say Paul and Barnabas spoke the word so effectively? I've been really challenged by this verse because I think it means that 
even though it's God who ultimately gives people new life and brings them to know Jesus, uh, I actually have some responsibility for doing my bit, for thinking about how could I explain the gospel more effectively to this person or these people in this time and place? I don't know if that makes sense, but we have some responsibility. And uh, sometimes the reason people might not be uh, coming to believe in Jesus is because we're explaining the gospel in a way that's just really culturally, I don't know, archaic and not connecting with people and ineffective. You might say, yeah, that's what I experience every Sunday I come to hear you preach. No, you probably didn't say that. Anyway, the point is, this is why I love, like, this is a, a kind of group project, isn't it? I love getting phone calls from people or emails from people having conversations with people where they're saying, how do you think I could share the gospel more effectively with this person at work or with my brother or sister who's not a Christian or with this mum that I know at mum's group? This is the kind of conversation we can have about how would the gospel be good news for this person in particular who doesn't live in Lystra or Iconium but in Thornbury or Northcote or Ivanhoe. Anyway, they speak the word so effectively that there's great acceptance. A great number of people believe. It's a wonderful moment of praising God. And yet, we've also got verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe, uh, it stirred up others, uh, other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You see this pattern. You preach the gospel, there are those who accept it, And there are those who reject it. And notice Luke says they're personally responsible for rejecting it. Can't blame God. They're the ones who refuse to believe. And they weren't just satisfied. You know, these days people might be, well, although this is changing, I think people in Australia used to be saying, look, Christianity is not for me. I'm content with that. I've refused to believe for myself. But I'm not going to go out of my way to oppose Christianity to rub it out, to turn other people against Christianity. These days, it's a little bit more common, isn't it, for people not only to refuse to believe for themselves, but to kind of want to stir up trouble and turn other people against Christianity, maybe to drive Christian leaders out of town. And that's a little bit what we see here in in Iconium, isn't it? These people aren't satisfied with refusing to believe themselves. They stir up opposition against Paul and Barnabas. Uh, And Luke says they poison people's minds against them. Now, we don't really know what that looked like, but I assume it meant going around spreading false ideas, false ideas about who Paul and Barnabas were and what their ministry was about. And that's a really tough place to be as a Christian leader. Notice how Paul and Barnabas respond, though, in verse 3. All this opposition rising up. So, right, therefore... Paul and Barnabas uh, spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Uh, If you scan back to the end of Acts 13, you'll see there that there was lots of opposition and Paul and Barnabas uh, shook the dust off their feet, which is a biblical picture of saying they moved on, they cut and run. They said, well, fine, it's on you. You've heard the message. We're not staying around. Sometimes that's the best response if there's lots of opposition. But other times, like here in Iconium, uh, where a whole bunch of people are accepting the message, it's appropriate to stay like Paul and Barnabas do here and continue speaking God's word boldly, even though the opposition is rising up. And so that's what Paul and Barnabas do. 
Uh, they've probably been driven out of the synagogue in verse 3, uh, but they stay in the city proclaiming the word of God boldly. I don't know, really, we're not told why they did that, but I wonder if it was at least in part because they weren't surprised by the opposition. They knew that the gospel divides people. Like in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. You'll see there, verse 5, the opposition's pretty extreme. There's a plot afoot, I like that, a plot afoot, uh, among uh, both Gentiles and Jews, uh, together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Sometimes I think uh, that when we hear Jesus' words, you know, Jesus says, um, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and come after me. I think we hear that uh, in a largely comfortable Australia as Jesus, as a purely a kind of metaphorical thing. So I think Jesus is just, he's just saying, oh, if you follow me, you've got to put to death your ego. You've got to daily die to your sin and self-centeredness and so on. And that is true. That's not just what he was saying, was it? He's saying, if you follow me, there probably will be some times where it threatens your life and livelihood. In this life, it will bring death at times. That's what he's saying. And I think that that's, been, that's the story for Paul and Barnabas. That's been the story for most Christians throughout history. It's a story for most Christians in the world today. To follow Jesus, to choose Jesus, is to choose a life where your life and livelihood is threatened. I think we're just starting to get a bit of a taste of that in Australia. I'm not, you know, panic stations, I'm not going to let's throw everything up in the air. But I am saying it does, like, there are people who are maybe losing their job for the sake of following Jesus. And we ought to count the cost of that, I think, and think about it. So Paul and Barnabas, in this case, they're able to flee the city and get away from this plot to kill them. They move on uh, to Lystra. uh, But of course, in Lystra, exactly the same thing happens, right? Because this is the normal pattern of Christian ministry. There's rejection and acceptance. Verse 19, there's rejection Some of the Jews from Antioch and Iconium come down to Lystra, stir up trouble, oppose, they stone Paul. They think they've killed Paul. This is opposition leading to persecution, threatening people's lives. And yet in verse 20, there's clearly some people who've accepted Jesus. The disciples of Jesus gather around Paul. They discover that he's actually, maybe he was just unconscious. He comes back too, and they help Paul and Barnabas move on to Derbe. The normal pattern of a faithful Christian ministry is this mixed response of acceptance and rejection. What does that mean? I think it means that on the one hand, uh, if um, if everyone's rejecting you or the ministry you're involved in, uh, then it's probably the case that you're being unnecessarily offensive. Not guaranteed, but if absolutely no one wants a bar of you, you're probably being more offensive than the offence of the gospel. You know, Paul says that the gospel can be offensive to people. I get that. But Christians can be offensive too. And and so if if you're just experiencing wholesale rejection, then take a look. Yeah, 
Take a look at your conduct. On the other hand, if you're experiencing wholesale acceptance, everyone loves you, everyone loves your ministry, then maybe you've become a little bit too much of a people pleaser. Like your aim is just to do whatever it takes to get people to like you. Like the normal pattern of Christian ministry is a mixed response. Acceptance and rejection. We see that in Jesus' ministry, we see that in Paul's ministry, uh, we see that throughout the Bible. And what about the purpose of Christian ministry? You know, I understand it's a bit funny saying penultimate purpose. You know, who uses the word penultimate? Uh, I was just trying to make the point that uh, the ultimate purpose of Christian ministry is always to bring glory to God. That's the aim of everything we do, is that people would see just how great and beautiful and glorious God is. Yet, how do we do that as we go about our ministry? I think this passage shows us that we do it uh, in particular by firmly establishing Christian communities. That's how we do it. This is verses 21 to 28. Paul and Barnabas's aim isn't just to preach the gospel so that a bunch of isolated individuals would become Christians. But their aim is to gather those Christians together into communities, into churches that would be firmly established, that would persevere together in following Jesus. And I think we see a few marks, four marks, of a, a Christian community that's, firm, uh, that's firmly established in the faith. So I'll just quickly whip through those. Uh, the first of those four marks uh, is, persev- uh, is um, encouragement that promotes perseverance. Now take a look in, in verses 21 and 22. Paul and Barnabas are retracing their steps, Lystra, Iconium, uh, and they encourage these new Christians to remain true to the faith. You see, their encouragement is aimed to help them persevere, to remain true to Jesus, to keep trusting Jesus, uh, even though there's all sorts of opposition. We touched on that before. And they say you shouldn't be surprised by the opposition because notice this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I reference this um, sort of in passing earlier, I alluded to it, the, the whole saga of Andrew Thorburn, connected to the Essendon Football Club. Again, I'm not kind of, you know, freaking out about that or whatever. Uh, But what I've been encouraged by, as I've listened to people at our church speak about it, is I've heard several people remind one another uh, that we shouldn't be surprised by this sort of thing happening. I'm not saying that we have to like it. I'm not saying you can never say anything against it. But we shouldn't be surprised by it. Because Jesus and the apostles didn't hide this idea of persecution and opposition to Christianity in the fine print of the contract, you know? It's like, oh, by the way, there might be a bit of opposition. No, no, no. Like, Jesus and the apostles, they both said, if you want to enter into the full blessings of God's kingdom, then the path to that is going to be through suffering and persecution and hardship. It's not that there's no joy along the way. There's great joy in following Jesus. But we enter with our eyes wide open. And so Paul and Barnabas need to encourage these new Christians who are living in the midst of opposition uh, to persevere in trusting Jesus. And if that's going to happen, they know that they're going to need some leaders who will care for them and teach them and show them the way. And so in verse 23, they appoint elders. Now, uh, you may or may not know that the word elder there uh, is is the word presbyteros, 
little Saturday, Sunday afternoon Greek for you, but that's, that's where we get the uh, name Presbyterian from, uh, and that's because uh, our church has elders. Right? Uh, we think it's, it's verses like this that I guess went some way to convincing me that it was a good thing to be a part of a church, a minister of a church, uh, that was committed to having a group of elders to lead and care for and, and teach people. But it's not just about elders, is it? Actually, the, the leadership and care and teaching structures in a church, particularly as it gets bigger, has to be much bigger than the elders. So we know that at DPC. We want to keep improving our systems of caring for people and teaching people. But certainly as it stands, we've got a bunch of great gospel community leaders. We've got um, M-team leaders and ministry team leaders and various people who are helping us to lead and care for and teach people so that we can all persevere together in keeping trusting Jesus despite opposition that might come up. And a key part of that uh, leadership, as, as modelled by Paul and Barnabas, is committing people to the Lord in prayer. Notice that at the end of verse 23. With prayer and fasting, Paul and Barnabas committed people to the Lord, the Lord in whom they had trusted. I reckon sometimes I've gone about my ministry at DPC in a way that um, I could have, I don't know if I've sent this message to people, but I've certainly felt it at times that the long-term security and establishment of Darabin Presbyterian Church uh, is in my hands. It's pretty egocentric, isn't it? But there's a sense in which I've felt like it all depends on me. I've got to make it happen. And so verses like this are a bit of a challenge to me. I hope they're a challenge to you as well. If DPC is going to be firmly established, not just for 10 years that we're coming up for, but for 20 years, 30 years, till Jesus returns... It's not going to be because DPC is secure in the hands of Aaron Boyd. It's because DPC is secure in the hands of the Lord. Jesus, who promises to build his church and sustain his church. And so let me encourage you to join in committing our, us as God's people to the Lord in prayer. In verses 24 to 26, we see that part of being a, a church that's secure in the hands of the Lord is sending people out to reach new people. This is the model of the church in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas return to. And I often think about this just as a, a healthy relationship uh, is never completely inward-looking. Healthy couples, they're, they're usually looking to include others, to welcome others, to show hospitality. And that's a healthy church too. A healthy church is never completely inward-looking and insular. They're always looking outward, reaching out to include others into their midst. They're always sending out people. And that's because a healthy church understands that their God is ascending God. Our God is ascending God. God the Father sent his Son into the world to seek and save we who were lost. And the Father and Son sent the Spirit into the world that we might go into the world to seek and save the lost. So as a people who are saved by Father, Son and Spirit and filled with the Spirit of God, we will always be reaching out, sending people out uh, to reach new people uh, with the gospel. And this is something I'd like to see us do more of at DPC again. And when those people come back, like with the Vinicums today, not that we're the only church that sent Matt and Kate out, but when they come back, uh, we ought to give thanks for all that the Lord has done. 
That's the end of the chapter. And so you see the tension here. On the one hand, God's spirit is always pushing us out to reach new people. You read it at the start of Acts chapter 13. The spirit told the church in Antioch to set people aside and send them out to reach new people. God's Spirit's always doing that. There's a sense in which we should always be looking forward as a church, thinking, who are we going to reach next? And yet, we've also got to be looking back and celebrating all that the Lord has done. And I've got to say, if you've known me, I mean, all of us have our own tendencies. If you've known me for a little while, uh, you'll probably know that I'm a lot better at looking forward at what's next than looking back and giving thanks. I think I'm getting better at giving thanks. Uh, But as a church, hey, in February next year, it's our 10th birthday, and we're going to take some time to give thanks for all that the Lord has done. Uh, And if there are things that we can give thanks for in the meantime, then let's do that. That's the priority, the pattern, and the purpose of Christian ministry. But I think... I think the truth is we're not going to keep giving ourselves to this particular pattern of ministry. This pattern of ministry, it's full of opposition and hardship and suffering and, yes, joys as well, but there's a lot of hard stuff there, isn't there? We're not going to keep giving ourselves to that sort of pattern unless the gospel that we say we prioritise really, really captures our hearts. That's the key, isn't it? It's not just an abstract key priority, but a a priority in our own hearts and lives. Because the gospel that tells us that we're, uh, no matter who opposes us or who rejects us or who doesn't want a bar of us, we're loved by God, we're accepted by God, we're safe and secure in his love. And it's from that place of knowing you're accepted by God and us knowing that we're accepted by God that we'll keep pressing out with this purpose of preaching the gospel and seeking to see Christian communities firmly established in the faith. So I pray that that would be true for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do look back and give thanks uh, for all that you have done uh, in and through DPC. Uh, Father, we look forward to all that you might do, will do in and through our church. We pray, Father, that we would be a church that strives to prioritise the gospel, the message of your grace uh, in all that we do. We pray, Father, that as our hearts are gripped and captured by the good news of your grace to us in Jesus, we pray, Father, that we would keep giving ourselves to this pattern of ministry that, yes, includes uh, great joys of people accepting the gospel, but also great hardships of people not only rejecting the gospel, but rejecting us. Our Father, we pray that you would give us the joy of persevering and trusting Jesus together, that we might see not just DPC uh, firmly established, uh, but play a part in seeing other Christian communities established in the faith too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.